Welcome once again to the Conversations That Matter podcast. I'm your host, John Harris, joined again with uh, Ben Crenshaw and Time and Klein. How are you guys doing? Good. How are you, John? Doing all right, except uh, I just found out half an hour before recording that half my closet in my uh, kitchen is rotted out. So I'm going to have to go in the rest of the day and do some uh, some very Christian nationalist uh, manly work in there and uh, figure out what's going on. But um, uh, that sounds like idolatry to me. I don't know. It, yeah, don't exert yourself too much. It's true. I could build a muscle. And, um, I mean, you should be, you know, seeking godliness. I should be. Why am I even on this podcast? I don't know. Um, <laughs> so <Left>. anyway, <laughs> um, all jokes aside, there there is a, a an issue right now, obviously in the Middle East, and I thought it would be a good launching pad for this series. This is part three for those who are just tuning in on. Uh, what are we talking about? Liberalism. <laughs> I almost forgot what our subject was. I was going to say nationalism. No, liberalism. And, uh, you know, there's some interesting things, some some almost like deep seated, it seems to be pathological things about Europeans and Americans that are being manifest right now. And, and I want to start the whole thing off. We're going to talk about Israel uh, first. But uh, Timon, you posted this clip on Twitter. This is from Henry Kissinger, who, of course, was deeply involved in uh, American foreign policy and government uh, for, I think, what, since the Nixon administration, yeah, uh, at least. And, and here's what he had to say. I, I'm assuming this is fairly recently. What's a grave mistake to let in so many people of totally different cultural and religious and concepts because it creates a pressure group inside each country that does that okay uh it's interesting coming from henry kissinger it it, it reminds me who is the guy there was a, a news anchor uh was it brian williams a, f- a few years ago he his last segment right he was about to retire and he just decided to go off on how bad america was and, and everyone thought at the time like you contributed to the media being as bad as it is and and i get the same feeling so time and why did you post that yeah, so I mean Kissinger, I mean he's not beloved, I would say, by by a lot of liberals in the sense that he's he's blamed for a lot of the things that they dislike about the Nixon administration, subversion of the foreign policy establishment. And for better or worse, you know, the opening of China, what what have you, you know, they do they do some things that are not acceptable to the establishment. And that's that's you can you can read things about this. It's probably why Nixon met his demise, and Kissinger's kind of wrapped up in that, accused of war crimes and all kinds of things. Even though he won the Nobel Peace Prize, um, but we know that doesn't take much. I mean, Obama got it too, right? So, um, but anyway, so he. But at the same time, in a weird way, he is still very much accepted by things like the Council on Foreign Relations and um, you know mainstream foreign policy blob academia. And he continues to, you know, pontificate on foreign policy pretty regularly. Um, I think Neil Ferguson is still working on this massive award-winning biography of him. And, you know, so he's kind of stuck around in a weird way. And what's strange here, though, is this was with, with uh, Politico, an interview. I'm not, I'm not sure exactly from when it is either, but it's fairly recent because he's, he's very old. Um, and it's the reason I posted it is because, you know, here's a guy that even though I think he would describe himself as a political realist in many ways, you know, is part of the construction of the, the post-war liberal national or international order as it stands. Um, but here he is kind of, as I, as I tweeted, discovering late 19th and early 20th century objections to mass immigration, which which are now you know completely discarded as being bigoted or whatever. And he's being a realist. He's saying, you know, you introduce these um, incongruent kind of um, commitments, beliefs, cultural backgrounds, whatever. I mean, it's only uh, you can like them or dislike them. The fact of the matter is it's going to create disruption. And this is really stupid for countries to do at scale um, if you value the longevity and stability of your nation. So it's a very the point was this is a super rudimentary point to past generations. But here is you know, a former secretary of state almost uh, half a century after leaving office, declaring it like it's, you know, some kind of revolution that he's the revelation that he's discovered. And, you know, it's kind of, you can tell the the guy interviewing him is kind of uh, a, a bit uh, uncomfortable with the <laughs> with the assertion. So it's it's uh, it just shows the, the utter state of like the foreign policy establishment that they're just now starting to say, wait a minute. Oh, maybe, you know, there's there's 
there's facts on the ground we have to consider in uh, making these policies that have basically been unleashed for the past, you know, at least quarter century with reckless abandon. So I thought it was an interesting sort of cultural artifact to, uh, to put out. Well, he's questioning one aspect of what we call some call the post-war consensus that uh, these different, basically commitment to, I guess, multiculturalism or pluralism. And, um, and, and he's saying, I mean, he's oversaw much of this. And now he's mm -hmm. saying that maybe that wasn't such a good idea. Maybe it didn't work out so well. Uh, maybe that produces conflict. And, and as you know, I'm watching this video that you posted, I'm thinking about two hours south of me in New York City right now. Uh, there have been protests over the last few days, pro-Palestinian, pro-Israeli factions going at it um, on, on an issue that is really halfway across the world for them. Mm -hmm. Actually, it's it's around the world. It's the other side of the world. Mm -hmm. and, and and it's affecting us. It's affecting other European countries as well. We've seen the videos of college campus protesters in favor of Palestine. Uh, obviously, um, there's a lot of uh, you know pro-Israeli sentiment in especially elite circles, um, liberal or otherwise. And uh, it, it just strikes me as interesting for a country that has an open border and many European nations do as well to be so concerned all of a sudden um, about what's happening in the Middle East to the point of wanting to uh, put more money. We, we, we give them a lot of money anyway, Israel, and, and give them more money, just like we did Ukraine. Uh, when we're in debt, when we have a crisis on our hands in our own inner cities, when we have so many things to be concerned about at home, it it's, it's almost seems insane or pathological right to be this obsessed because some people are i'm not saying everyone but to be this obsessed with what's happening across the world and, and I, i'm sure some would argue that well this will affect us the terrorists will come to us or whatever if we don't but i i want to get your takes on this because i think it's it, this gets right into the post-war consensus and we're seeing it on display in part at least in front of us in the reaction to the israeli conflict uh ben uh, we'll start with you i mean do you see this relationship yeah, certainly. I mean, if you, you know, we, I like to beat up on the progressives because they, you know, had a kind of a rejection of America as it was founded and they had some pretty poor ideas politically, but, you know, not all of their sensibilities were wrong. Like they were actually, um, you know, American first nationalists. They had a healthy concept of nationalism. Um, I mean, Wilson had his League of Nations and he wanted to flex American muscles abroad. And so did Teddy Roosevelt. And they did that, but they did it under the concept of kind of this uplift of humanity, which they were going to, to raise everybody to America's standards. Well, what you have with the liberal consensus in the middle of the 20th century is a rejection of progressive nationalism for this kind of international uh, order that uh, downgrades um, any kind of American first um, self-identity, but at the same time, like just flexes raw American economic and military power to impose its will. So you have like a, a loosening of the bonds of America. At the same time, you have this, um, you know, this massive um, you know, military, international military order, as we see right now, which is, you know, carrier groups flung across the four corners of the globe. And we're just going to move them around like chess pieces on a board to bully other countries if they if they dare go against, you know, America's wishes. So it's a, it's a strange kind of schizophrenic, incoherent policy in the middle of the 20th century. We see things like, um, you know, another, another uh, uh, strength of the progressives was their immigration policy, in fact. They, up till the 1965 Immigration and Nationality Act, um, uh, they actually had what was called a, uh, a nation of origin quota system in which they required that like 70% of all immigrants come from the UK, Ireland, or Germany. And the 65 Immigration and Nationality Act just destroyed that for a family's first um, immigration policy that pulled from a lot of Eastern and Southern European countries, and especially from Asia and Latin America. So, so the liberal consensus by the by the 1960s in terms of um, a multiculturalism over and against nationalism and immigration policy just totally blew open the kind of um, consolidarity, the 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 solidarity, the uh, common cultural, linguistic, 
customs, religion, norms, way of life that had centered around Anglo-American, Northwestern European um, life for basically three and a half centuries. Um, and, and so that's really, in some ways, like we're reaping the the consequences of this 60 years later, but it's something that w- that's, you know, started in the 60s. Um, so yes, it's, it's, it's both a domestic problem in America, a weakening of American identity and bonds and just in any kind of just sensible um, national polity. It's like, in, in fact, there's never really been a purely, a truly pluralistic state. It's always a, a phase you pass through you know how like Marxism was like, you know, co- capitalism is a phase on the way to, you know, the socialist or communist brotherhood of, of everyone. Well, pluralism is, a, is always a phase from some kind of unity, some kind of homogeneity to another kind of homogeneity. And so that's what's happening right now. We're, we're passing from that older Anglo-American homogeneity into some other homogeneity. Who it's going to be? Is it going to be uh, some minority majority um, consensus later? It's hard to know, but it's, I mean, it's already changed America in ways that we can't go back uh, back on. Um, and I think the last thing I'll say right here is, you know, others have pointed this out, but with this these attacks on Israel, I think, you know, once again, you see the neoconservative and the neoliberal um you know, kind of this projection of the love and the hope of nationalism onto Israel, because Americans, we don't have that. We've been told that's bad. It's been ripped away from us. And so it has to be expressed with solidarity with Israel. And, you know, all these, you know, Nikki Haley and Ted Cruz, all these people are coming out. Mike Pence, like Israel's enemies are America's enemies and a fellow democracy, we must defend it. And uh, all these statements, well, that's a part of the pathologies of uh, liberalism that began to break down in the late 20th century and the kind of multiculturalism and international order that's also just utterly corrupt. It, now, this is just my opinion. I haven't heard anyone say this, Ben. Uh, I'm just curious if you think this is uh, plausible, but um, Gone with the Wind was, I think it still is, the most popular or the, or the, the box office uh profit is the most profit adjusted for inflation of any film and of course the book was was a bestseller and there was this period of time uh during the progressive era and even stretching into beyond that that um even for northerners they would look at the south as this kind of uh with a nostalgia that there was this land of knights and almost a medieval kind of land that once existed not long ago that was destroyed um and and uh, and it's weird because it's it's almost like people who weren't on that side of the conflict are the ones who made these things bestsellers, and and there was a need it fulfilled. And I've wondered, this is just my own personal thought, whether there's been a transference that uh, sort of Amer- American folk culture, um, th- this kind of attachment to the homestead, the old ways many of them Anglo, Scotch, Irish, that that attachment has been displaced. And now we're trying to find other places for a home. And and right now, I think Israel could be that, that there's like this kind of like, like they have something that we don't have and there's a hunger for it and we yearn for it. And I I don't want to be too psychological about this, but you open that door. And this does seem to be a door that if this is true, that this is a post-war consensus thing. This is a this is an odd thing, really. It's weird uh, in the grand scheme of history to be this attached as some of us are to uh, a nation halfway around the world. And I know there's theological things that, that come to play in this, but um, do, do you see that maybe that transference from an, a more of an Americana to now Ukraine or Israel or other places? Yeah, sure. I think that's probably has a lot to do with it. I mean, obviously the Holocaust does have a lot to do with it and, you know, the, you know, the, the movement for a Jewish state starting in the, you know, the 1880s and 90s, um, that's been a long time coming. Um, and then, of course, it was the United Nations that basically created the partition plan in 1947. Israel accepted it and the Arabs rejected it. And you immediately had a war. Israel won. 
So it was basically like it was in one sense, it was a it was a creation of the United Nations, which, of course, after World War Two, I mean, this was like America ran the world um, in both militarily in terms of our GDP. I mean, our economic strength and military strength, no, no one could match it. Europe was devastated. China and Japan utterly destroyed. The Soviet Union like emerged as a, eventually as a competitor. But I think in in like 1945, in terms of um, just raw numbers, like America's GDP was like four or five times greater than the Soviet Union's. So I mean, it, in one way, like America created uh, or brought brought to fruition the you know the creation of the Israeli state, and so there it does seem to be this kind of uh, this pregnant responsibility, like. This is our baby and we we must nourish this. And, and it coincided, of course, with the breakdown of of nationalist fervor in America. And of course, part of this was part was was partly due to American elites and academics who told us that nationalism was bad after World War Two, because, my gosh, it'll it'll lead to some kind of xenophobia and some fascism will happen. And before long, we'll be at each other's throats, we'll be purging uh, the stranger and, and you know, descend into World War III. So we have nationalism is bad. It's it's must be eradicated on our shores. At the same time, you create an ethno-national state of Israel. So yeah, there's totally this transfer going on. The UN is right at the beginning of it. America's in all in the middle of it. So, so yes, it's this thing that, uh, you know, I don't, I don't, I don't deny or decry or hate the Israelis for having their own state. I mean, they have basically uh, rallied around themselves. It's more like I want us to have that. <laughs> I don't. I don't begrudge them. I. I want America to have a, a nation too. That it has to be centered around some kind of uh, commonalities, common language, heritage, culture, religion, and so forth. You want to call that ethno-nationalism? That's. I don't. I don't care the terminology. I care more about the ideas. Um, so, so yes, I certainly think there's a projection there. There's a historical inheritance and responsibility that we feel for Israel. And I mean, Israel has, has fought valiantly and defended itself against, um, aggressors and that's how the world works. And here, I'll say this one other thing in terms of Israel in the post-war era, there's been this, uh, you know, this, this hope for a, for an international, uh, rules-based order. That's a, that's a technical terminology for it, in which we're no longer going to have great power conflict like we did in World War I and World War II. And we're going to govern ourselves through the UN and through peacekeeping troops and through these international agencies and NGOs. And we're going to have rules and everybody's going to abide by these rules. And if you mess up, then we're going to slap some sanctions on you. It's all going to be this kind of global economic capitalist blowback or something like that. Um, and that's how we're going to run the world. And we're never going to go back to a kind of international global state of nature in which the strongest rules. Israel's never known anything like that. I mean, they they have lived this kind of Hobbesian state of nature <laughs> decade after decade because they're surrounded by hostile uh, nations that have basically pledged to wipe them off the face of the earth. And so, again, part of the schizophrenia is that from the American global perspective, you want a rules-based international order in which we leave behind this older way of life, this great power conflict. So we're never gonna have a world war again. At the same time, Israel's living this very kind of vicious uh, war of all against all, having to defeat its enemies and terrorists decade after decade, year after year. So it, it, it none of it makes sense. It's trying to make some force, some perfect reality out, you know, state out of something that can't, can't be done. And, and so it is, a, it is part of the just incoherence of kind of the political leadership, both in America and in the Western world. Uh, time and uh, just based on what Ben just said about Israel, uh, maybe we can make a pathway for a, a broader definition of the post-war consensus. I mean, this is just one specific thing we're looking at, but what would you say if someone asked you to define that and apply it to various situations? What is the post-war consensus? Yeah, well, on a um, on a cynical reading, and Ben kind of already alluded to this, 
the post-war consensus is, is American domination in many ways. And in, in that respect, in a cynical reading of it, I don't begrudge it necessarily um, because you've set up a state of, a, you, you sort of seized, um, you know, a, a an opportunity to, to establish dom- dominance where, you know, um, pejoratively we would say policing the world, but what you would say positively is sort of um, running the world for, for your benefit. And so much of what's gone on in the Middle East since uh, the, the, the mid 20th century has been for that reason. We've made a lot of stupid decisions, um, such as, you know, not realizing that if Afghanistan is too cold for the Soviets, it's probably too cold for us and you're never going to, you know, defeat these people. <laughs> but so lots of stupid, but the, but the general idea is, um, you know, to run it for, for your benefit under, at the time in a progressive era, what was considered to be, um, you know, liberal, liberal values, liberal, um, ways of, ways of interacting, um, while maintaining a sort of, you know, a lot of this goes back to the post-Westphalian kind of um, order, although that was a little more, little more realist, in my opinion. So, the, but the, um, to be less cynical and more, more descriptive, you know, the, the post-war rules-based international order, um, I mean, again, I think Ben's already, already mentioned it a little bit of it's, it's this idea that, uh, as we were talking about in a couple of our last talks, you know, the liberal ambition is to remove the need for conflict, the causes of conflict, which are rooted in, as we were just picking up Reno's, um, I think, very good, uh, you know, summary for this, strong gods, strong loves, right? Um, You get rid of those, much of which has to do with nationality and everything that's wrapped up in that, so we don't have to unpack it again. Um, And so what you do is establish um, at a you know, global level, at least for the civilized world and progressives and liberals do still have that sense, even if they don't want to say it, um, the real participants, you will mitigate conflict by addressing, you know, any disagreements or inevitable, um, you know, micro conflicts through a sort of procedure, which is wrapped up in these international bodies we set up after World War II, uh, which include a massive, you know, court system. Right, that it's it's very ambiguous. It's very unclear. As international law as a discipline kind of has always has been since the 17th century, but even more so now because there's a sense in the the extent to which you try to formalize na- international law makes it more and more porous and more and more ambiguous um, in a kind of counterintuitive way. But you have these um, you know court systems, international bodies that are supposed to set um, agreeable standards um, for. A multiplicity of nations that will then, um, you know, uh, again mitigate against against conflict, and so it's um, sort of an arbitration of all, um, you know, international interaction. And this is run, of course, by the major powers, more more or less, right? The Security Council, whatever the big ones, um, even as some of them, you know, you have BRICS or, or whatever that have tried to form alternative blocks. But at the end of the day, um, you know, it's it's the big it really is still the most powerful people are running the world. So it's, it's kind of a facade in that way. But the idea is we will run the world by rules. We'll run it by uh, mutual, you know, sort of arbitration agreements, just like you'd have in an employment scenario. So you don't actually have to go to the violent route of litigation. You just settle it in house. It's that kind of idea. And thenceforth the, the, energy, most of the energy from the so-called international community, a term I just absolutely despise, it makes no sense, um, is to constantly rope in and force compliance upon nations that are have not yet fully bought in. Now, on the one hand, that includes places that subtly or not so subtly try to subvert this dynamic like China, but it also um, has vestiges of a colonialist attitude, even though they want to deny it and think they're solving that. And, and this is most manifest in conflicts in Africa, right? Trying to, to, to deal with those, which operate at a level of such um, basic politics that the international leaders of the international order can't really understand them. Um, and you see this over and over again, our failures um, in Africa. And even saying that our failures in Africa is a nonsensical statement. That only that only does make a semblance of sense within this international rules based order. So we're talking. You said rules based. I know Ben. You said that as well. Um, we're we're talking about something that uh, would make it makes sense of a lot of the catchphrases and kind of attachments we have, where 
we think democracy is the solution to almost any problem. If, if a culture or a civilization doesn't have it, then that must be their issue and they need it. And maybe even by force, we can, we can uh, not just set an example, but tell them that they're going to be democratic. And, um, it, you know, things like that, where it's, it's not so much your attachments to land or language or people, it's more your, uh, th these, this commitment to a rules-based system of, uh, we want democracy, we want uh, liberal individual rights being protected, that kind of thing becomes the standard by which we evaluate someone as whether they're a friend or a foe, and we make that distinction. Um, and then they're not part of the international community if they deviate from that. Uh, th th that seems to be what you're saying. And, and I've heard this referred to as the the gay, right? The, the great mm -hmm. American empire um, that is now, I think, probably starting to come to a close. That's what it seems like, at least. A lot of these fissures yeah. in Ukraine yeah. and now Israel and mm -hmm. pretty soon probably in Taiwan and other places are just foreshadowing mm -hmm. of, uh, our dollar collapsing and, um, uh, you know, and I don't want any of that, but it's just, yeah, it, it just is reality. Um, so, so and, Ben, and one thing, oh, go John, ahead. John, real quick, just one thing to note there, as you were talking that, that people should notice is, you know, as this thing, thing emerges that we're talking about, um, that is supposed to establish and maintain global order, right? The scope is the globe, or at least most of, most of the globe that matters, um, the way they are, they're able to sell it to people, and this is where the catchphrases come out, right, is not through, you're not able to rally support in any, in any country's domestic sphere by saying, um, we're going to expend massive amounts of energy and resources and, and human lives to do this for the sake of proceduralism. That doesn't make sense to anybody. So what you do is you transfer actually the strong loves to a new plane, and you say, it's the international community. You're a citizen of the world. This is your scope now. So you broaden the scope and that has some intuitive sense to people because you you do, as soon as those sort of ideas, even if they've been adulterated, are are put forward to you, you do, you do have a sense of allegiance and you do feel a sense of belonging. And so what we're seeing is you're talking about the economic collapse, the sort of security state collapse in its reach um, demonstrated by um, all of our activity now being completely reactionary rather than uh, proactive in, in seeking our interests globally, which is what it was all kind of about. Um, you also see the slow collapse of the, um, this is not necessarily pejorative, but the propaganda, I guess, basically having a hold on people. Right. So that was my only point. Yeah. This is where you get uh, the, the whole idea that an attack on Ukraine or an attack on Israel is an attack on the United States. Exactly, wonder, like, that's how, exactly my point. Yeah. How is that an attack on us? But it is somehow. And then even those within the country who might have ancestors going back to the very period of colonization, settlements, founding, uh, fought in all their wars. Those people that have that that heritage might be considered uh, outside of that. Like like they're not as American or not as um, part of the international order as someone in Israel who doesn't even speak our language because they might deviate, you know, they're conservative or whatever. They, they don't, uh, they believe that America's borders should be sealed and we should be an Anglo Protestant country or go back to some tradition that's archaic or considered that. Now those people end up getting the shaft. They become like, they're not actually included as part of the in group. So th th that us versus them always comes out, even though the whole point of the liberal order is to eliminate an us versus them. They just transfer it. I think, as you just said, Ben, to another plane. Uh, and it's still there. Um, so, yeah, great points. Uh, I don't know, Ben, if you had anything to add to the post yeah, stuff. I'll add a couple things here. So, um, yeah, I think uh, I agree with everything Timon said, well said. You know, if you read somebody like <clears throat> Robert Kagan in his little book, The Jungle Grows Back, um, I believe he's married to Valerie Jarrett, and she's right in the middle of um, all of this stuff going on in Ukraine. And um, there's also family and heritage going on there. So don't think that some of the proxy wars that are going on that America's running is not part of personal grievances by the elite class going back generations. There's that involved. There's all kinds of corruption, money, money laundering, all kinds of things going on behind the scenes. Um, this global international community, blah, 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 is, um, you know, just 
filthy rich gets away with all kinds of things, all kinds of actual war crimes and human right violations. All at the same time, it's justified upon this uh, discourse of human rights. Um, and so what you have, just what Timon was saying, is you have this kind of transposition of uh, a liberal logic or a liberal discourse around natural rights. So you have the natural rights of human beings. Those are you know, understood within the American Anglo experience and they're applied. Then this gets transposed into international human rights. So now all humans have these rights. It's again, a part of the liberal universalization of, you know, kind of a political community. And so, you know, how dare, this is where it gets its moral legitimacy. Like, well, how, how dare you stand by while, you know, Rwandans genocide each other? Or, I mean, this is the discourse right now. How can you possibly stand what Israel is now doing to, it's, it's ethnic cleansing in, in Palestine and Gaza. And so the, even the like, you know, these student groups at Harvard or wherever they are, they're protesting uh, on the basis of, of this kind of global international liberal logic of, you know, uh, you know a, a global welfare state transfer of wealth from rich to the poor, a kind of decolonization uh, which is just the inverse of a, a liberal colonization of human rights violations. Uh, and, and yes, of course, this idea of, um, you know, you, because you can't be part of your own national um, ethnic or heritage any longer, you have to love mankind writ large, a love for humanity qua humanity. And, and if the liberal can say, if the, if the liberal international can say, well, I'm on the side of humanity, then if you oppose them by definition you're on this you're an anti-human you know you 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 hate humanity i mean if they can claim that for themselves that can give them the justification to do anything you know of course to wage forever wars across the globe uh, in defense of humanity it's almost as if like you're an alien from outer space if you oppose a liberal international order because you're now an anti-human so it's a totalizing a globalizing and I'll say lastly, it also has this transposition of wealth and affluence in terms of a capitalist order that was going to bring uh, prosperity and free trade to individual nations and then was going to kind of take the place of, of violent conflict. And, you know, America and China were going to get along now because China was liberalizing economically. Um, and, and this idea in the liberal uh, international order is to use this wealth and influence to placate these strong loves. You know, if you can just give everybody not only this kind of this moral sense of, of profoundness of loving humanity, and then you can give them everybody a house, you can, uh, you know, raise their standard of living and feed them. They won't, they'll be happy. You know, they won't care about uh, these things that have, have long divided peoples and nations have led to war. So it is a kind of international transposition of this affluence and uh, global capitalist idea. And for, for those who think that this is unique to the left or something, I'm remembering uh, Ronald Reagan, who, of course, um, unfortunately, a lot of the things that are part of this, we can, we can not that Reagan came up with them, but he allowed them to continue like amnesty. Um, but uh, one of the things he said was, and, and I don't remember what speech it was, maybe some of maybe you do do, but he said that if an alien from outer space came, an alien force, you know, wouldn't it be a wonderful thing to see, I'm paraphrasing, humanity kind of uh, come together to try to fend off that threat. And, and, and I think that's what you're saying is that that is part of the liberal order. It's not aliens from outer space, but it's, it's yet <laughs> in the minds of the, the elites. But it's other. It's been other things. It's global warming is probably one of the big ones right now. It's like this is this alien threat that's coming against all of us that we must, we we have to band together. Our markets, um, we even with the World Health Organization, we we must be under the same rules when it comes to even our personal health care. I mean, how invasive is that? But it's all part of this order, and and it, the umbrella of you know being anti-human. I can think of all the other leftist smears under that. You know, racist, misogynist. Uh, anti-Semite, all, all the, the favorite pejoratives the left likes to use, homophobic, it all really comes down to that kind of instinct of like, you're against humanity. You hate humans. We love humans. 
and and we're better and we're superior because of that. Mm-hmm. So there is an us versus them thing. And no, that's, that's exactly right. John, if I can just jump in on that. So it's not, it's not missed the us versus them, you know, is a, and this, this coincides with stuff we were talking about before with friend enemy distinction as, as Ben puts it, the return of, you know, quality politics, qua politics, you know, the, the real kind of deal, substantive, uh, goals, ends-oriented politics, whatever you want to say, that has to take account of these these human realities. The us versus them paradigm, friend-enemy distinction, can, it never leaves. It just it just changes forms, right? So in the in the liberal paradigm, um, the the unique thing about the liberal paradigm is you perhaps for the first time have the benefit of telling yourself you're not doing this and that you are you are in fact defeating the us versus them, the friend enemy distinction. But the the, the uh, paradoxical thing is that in order to do that, you must have perhaps the most, the harshest and most inclusive friend enemy distinction that's ever existed in terms of politics, because it encapsulates absolutely anyone who defies these, these very um, idealistic, um, on their face altruistic priors, such as I am for humanity. Anyone who says, maybe even just that's a stupid thing to say is now an enemy of humanity. And that again is, is uh, encapsulates a lot of people as you just listed off the litany of, of liberal sins that you can commit. Um, And then the, the basis for, you know, the, the basis for the friend enemy distinction or some of these more aggressive realist approaches to politics is always rooted in the protection uh, maintenance and longevity of the of your particular commonwealth and people, which is is was previously considered a noble goal. At this point, the goal um, that justifies the liberal friend enemy distinction remains very amorphous, and as uh, you know, Ben was pointing out the sort of um, you know questionable motives for many of the policies that are that are justified by the pursuit of this. So in that in that sense, it's it's, you know, even less defensible. It's at this um, it's blown up to such a scale of irrationality and over inclusivity that it actually has the potential to perform worse atrocities than than the liberal order was ever set out to put a stop to. And I think you're beginning to 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 see some of those things or inklings of those things. This is, I think, very applicable for Christians who are listening in because, and I don't want to put it words in, in Ben or, or time in your mouths here. You can feel free to chime in, but I'm just going to say it. I think some of the fractures that we're seeing right now in Christianity, even in Reformed Christianity, where you think that the theology is so similar, why can't these groups get along? They got along two minutes ago. Why are they fracturing now? I think it has something to do with what we are talking about that there, these fracture lines have developed. And, and you know, I'll talk about, you know, the G3 Christian nationalist controversy, even in these terms, you know, the theology between myself, let's say, and and someone like, like a Virgil Walker, who just blocked me on Facebook or uh, Twitter, right? It's probably pretty similar when it comes to a lot of theological matters. Why is it that, you know, he's uh, offended by, by me? Or why is it that Owen Strawn is offended by Stephen Wolf? Or, Right. Stephen Wolf is probably the best example of someone who just wrote a book. And it's like everyone who, who even shared his reformed thinking on many things had to denounce him. Why? And I think it comes down to this, that there is a friend enemy distinction going on. And even those within the faith, if you you, you could believe in the, in the doctrines of grace and all the solas and be part of even the same denomination. Right. Anthony Bradley was going after uh, Zach Garris just what, two days ago. Uh, because Zach Garris is supposedly a kinist. Now, I happen to know Zach and Sean McGowan was too. Zach and Sean are both in what many would consider interracial marriages. <laughs> I mean, I, I think they, they they are, you know, and and yet they're kinists now, right? And why is that? I think it's what you just said, Simon. The friend-enemy distinction is coming out, and they are against this post-war consensus. In all, all of these cases, all of us, myself, Stephen Wolf, Zach, Sean, you guys, you're 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 critical of this post-war consensus. You don't think that there's there is an in-group. There should be natural uh, natural organic attachments to things that we have experience with and shared experience with other people that have been built up over time. That that's something that's part of God's good order. He made it that way, and there are those within our faith who don't see it that way quite. Uh, and and that's what I think makes them so offended. So you don't have to say whether you agree with my analysis of that. I know that could 
get you in hot water time in, in the very prestigious position you're at, at a, a American reformer. But, um, but that's how I see it playing out. That's my only explanation for these fractures. So they don't make any other sense otherwise. Hmm. I, I, would, I will go, no, go ahead. Ben. No, 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 get something. yourself in hot water first. That way. Yeah, Ben. Okay. Yeah. Ahead. I'll, I'll, I'll kind of, I'll tread carefully first. Uh, <laughs> So I was going to say something about this concept of Judeo-Christian uh, America, because I think a lot of times modern Christianity in America, um, you know, they they basically use a liberalism um, in America and then globally as a kind of on-ramp or expression of the hope of a kind of universal um, global commission, this way of reaching the world. Um, the kind of universal aspirations of Christianity um, align very easily with the universal kind of global liberalism and, and the values and the ideas they talk about. So you're not going to have like an Owen Strand or someone that's going to talk, they're going to talk about universal human rights. Uh, they're going to love that. And the idea of a nationalism and a distinction between the rights of a citizen and the rights of a non-citizen not only threatens liberalism, but it seems to threaten the very kind of Christianity that they've come to understand that's really been packaged and brought to them as within this kind of like universal, I mean, this, uh, this liberal package. And, and actually this, this concept, I was talking to someone about this on Twitter the other day, trying to help them understand they did not. Um, this concept of Judeo-Christianity, yeah, <laughs> right. This concept of Judeo-Christianity was actually is very different than the ancient um, understanding of by Christians favorable toward uh, ancient Hebraicism because uh, we share, uh, you know, the scriptures with with the Jews of Old Testament. And I mean, that's not necessarily paralleled by the Jews, many of whom have rejected Christ, um, at least those who are practicing, you know, modern Orthodox Judaism. But, but there is this understanding of like, well, Christianity came out of Judaism, and so we share a lot. That's different than what I'm talking about here with Judeo-Christian values and Judeo-Christian democracy. This was a whole language and an ideology that was developed between World War I and World War II, really kind of took off after World War II, especially after the Holocaust. And it was actually a, a means of by which um, you know, religiously oriented Christians were trying to find a pluralistic religious basis to uh, defend American democracy against communism and secularism. And because of the kind of just the material differences in America in the 20th century, lots of immigration, communications revolutions, financial revolutions, there was a larger quote unquote community in America and they wanted to find something more than just like the old Anglo white Anglo Saxon Protestant community on which to ground American democracy in the 20th century. And so they turned to this Judeo-Christian consensus. Let's make, you know, let's make this, uh, this uh, big tent even bigger. Um, and this was how, you know, this was now the basis of democracy and how you're going to fight against um, any kind of authoritarianism or communism in, in the future. And this is also, I think, a lot of kind of the the paradigms, the language, the thought in which like modern American Christians are still thinking in terms of like, if we try to separate ourselves as Christians from, you know, Judaism, then we're betraying America and her founding and democracy and human rights. So you have to try to separate genuine uh, biblical theology and you know Christian practice prior to 20th century iterations and, and co-opting of that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I would just I would just piggyback off what Ben's saying there. There's a I would make the same distinction between what um, in historical kind of studies or historical theology is referred to as political Hebraism. That is, um, you can you can identify especially in 17th century Protestant theorists. Um, I think Todd Rester has written something very good on this. But anyway, um, which is the use of the Old Testament for, um, you know, your, your, your political theology, that, it's, that you're not just a New Testament Christian, as people say today. You use the, the Old Testament, in fact, for the majority of the construction of your political theology, which is not the same as being a, a theonomist. We'll leave that for another day. But um, 
and this is very different. I've, I've, I mention it all the time, but I've never mentioned it on this podcast. So I'll do it again. Uh, one of my favorite for so many reasons, cases, uh, uh, judicial opinions ever is a dissent in the Van Norden versus Perry case, which was one of the two Ten Commandments cases in uh, 2005, I think. And it's Justice John Paul Stevens just ripping to shreds. And it's not the whole not the whole opinion is, is great because he's obviously a progressive. He he thinks this is that the majority originalist opinion between Rehnquist and and uh, everybody else is bad because it's it's thwarting progress. But what he does do is absolutely eviscerate their historical case for they call it Judeo-Christian values at one point. Another point, it's all three Abrahamic religions. So now it's Islam is in there. Right. And like all of this. Yeah, you've got which we could look at the current conflict and be like, that's even crazier to say. What does that mean? Um, and, but Justice John Paul Stevens uses musters a, a great amount. Jasper Adams and all these uh, early uh, late 18th and early 19th century sources to say this is a very recent creation. If you want to talk, if you want to be an originalist, have a historic and textual basis for this opinion that um, it is perfectly constitutional to demonstrate or, or, or to um, to to show or have, you know, the, the Ten Commandments and other religious um, sectarian, uh, you know, sort of text outside of public buildings, including courthouses, then you're, you need to just ground it in the the Christian Protestant or Protestantism in particular um, of New England and the and the other states and just say that's what it is. But, you know, you can't get the votes that way. He like calls them out. He's like, so you've got to appeal to this bigger thing. Right. Um, so he's kind of cynical in that way. But I think it's based on what Ben was saying. I think it's there's a lot of truth to that, that that is what was happening in the post-war period. And you continue to see its expansion from Judeo-Christian values to Abrahamic values after 9-11, obviously. Right now, you've got to deal with that problem. And so it's just this continued expansion by neoconservatives in particular to, you know, it, it's a form of propaganda for particular um ends and we should point out as ben did and it continues through the early aughts all of these ends are what the maintenance of the international global order they are not domestically related you don't see any of them citing some sort of domestic strife that's that's organic and saying we've got to figure out how to integrate here it's all about defeating communism defeating radical islam but not having, you know, war crimes at home or something like that. You've got Abu Ghraib and these things coming out at the time. So it's all international. It's none of it is domestically centric. And that's because the neocon liberal mindset about these things is uh, very unconcerned with with maintaining the domestic, uh, historically uh, based domestic, you know, kind of people or nation. They're into the expansion of the international community because that's what suits them for various reasons. So I would I would totally agree. These are these are late creations. Um that, that are completely distinct from past Protestant use of um, Jewish sources, even. I mean, the, of course, you know, the, uh, the rabbinical literature, all these things. Um, this is, a, a, this is a liberal, a, an aspect of liberal propaganda used for particular ends that subvert the, uh, the national sovereignty. Since we only have like 10 minutes to talk about probably 95% of what Ben put on the outline. We're going to have to, this series is going to have more episodes than I uh, realized at first. This will be our <laughs> post-war consensus series or uh, episode. Uh, I, I think we should probably end it with this because the human rights language is so prevalent uh, in the post-war consensus uh, coming out of uh, the UN. I mean, this is what the, uh, the Nuremberg trials were based upon the, these violations of international law, human rights, these kinds of things. And it strikes me as interesting that in Israel, you have a class of people, Palestinians, right? Uh, so-called uh, Arabs, people like, uh, you know, uh, some of them, you know, different. I think they're mostly Arab, if I'm not mistaken, but uh, people who aren't Israeli living in the region. And there's a lot of complaints about the fact that uh, some of them live in refugee camps. They can't really get employment. They're not allowed to get employment. They're not allowed to carry firearms. They're not certain things that Israelis can do. They are not allowed to do right now. Th this is called by some of uh, those on the hard left, like the BLM types is this is modern apartheid, right? This is Jim Crow. This is all these, these, these things that, um, People in Africa or of African descent have endured through the years. That's the same thing happening to the Palestinians. But there isn't, it's just interesting to me, liberal elites don't tend to accept that 
they tend to be okay with Israel doing that, right? <laughs> to another group of people. That's they I've never seen it brought up that that's a violation of international uh, law or human rights with neocons, with um, people who are uh, on the upper echelons of the New York Times, etc. They're, they're not as concerned with those things. Um, but yet, at the same time, th that's what they appeal to all the time to bash the domestic critics of their own innovative plans. So what do you make of this concept of human rights? Like, where did it come from? Why is this a biblical thing? Because so many Christians seem very attached to this notion. Uh, th this seems like a, a modern invention or a fabrication. So, but Ben, I know you haven't talked for a while. You want to give a shot at that since we have sure. like five, 10 minutes? Yeah, I mean, I, I definitely think that the, the language and discussion of human rights picked up tremendously um, in the 1930s in America under FDR's um, presidency, or I don't know, in, imperial rule, you know, like 12 years. Um, and, uh, it, you know, you could have some people argue that it's just another term for natural rights, but the natural rights language coming out of you know, the great international uh, in natural right jurists, uh, you know, Christian Wolf and um, uh, Hugo Grotius and Emmer David Tell and, and James Wilson and those guys, like they don't talk about human rights per se. They talk about rights natural to the human being as created by God, a contingent being with these duties and these responsibilities, these loves, this, these both temporal and eternal ends. Um, created for happiness, created for relationship, created for political society. Well, um, I mean, what you have, of course, is the expansion of the natural rights language to human rights. And the, part of the reason for that was uh, rights were added uh, that were clearly not natural. <laughs> and they couldn't be justified on the basis of any kind of appeal to nature or appeal to uh, tradition or history. Uh, or scripture or anything like that. These were purely conventional, purely positive rights created by both uh, national and international bodies for the sake of justifying a, you know, in America, it was a, a combo welfare warfare state in the 20th century. Um, you know, you know, you have a right, you know, in his, uh, it's either his 41 or 44 State of the Union Address, uh, FDR says you have a right to be free from fear and free from want. Now, if you have a right, a human right to be fear, free from fear, I, I, I mean, like you can demand, I mean, you can demand that people say, respect your dignity and and uh, your, and not offend your opinions and, uh, you know, embrace and uh, credential your identity because if they fail to do that, then suddenly you become fearful. It opens the door for anything and everything. And then, of course, you know, the UN Declaration of Human Rights. When was that time? Was that 48? I think it was 1948. Um, yeah. You know, it it has all the language of, of human rights, it, you know, right to education and a right to a job. It's like its economic bill of rights. So we had a political bill of rights and we need an economic bill of rights. So this is where the language of, of human rights come from. It really is a 20th century um, invention. And it's a it's a moral justification for 20th century liberalism and the international order. This is, you know, if you have a human rights violation anywhere in the world, you can drone them. Um, or, you know, you can send a carrier task force. You can have Congress declare war or you can just bypass Congress with the war power and say, I'm president now. And I'm gonna, you know, I'm gonna order a strike myself. <laughs> um, and so it is. It's it's the basis of the moral legitimacy and justification of you know the the global managerial liberal elites today. And if you oppose it again, you're an anti-human. How can you, you know, you, are you okay with the abuse of human rights? Would you want your rights abused? So it's it, it itself is an abuse of rights language and rights idea. And here's what I would say, Ben, just to, uh, this affirms what Ben is saying, but this is my, I've, I don't know if anyone else has kind of done it this way, but this is my very brief explanation of what human rights functionally does as, as Ben has described it, is you have, um, everyone just take my word for it, I'm not gonna cite any sources, but the con consensus would be um, natural law 
is is very very basic there's very basic premises that you such as self-defense right the, the right of self-preservation very basic now you got to figure out how to particularize these things and you come to secondary conclusions and applications and this is the job of human positive law and human rulers to say based on these very high level things which include by the way the lawgiver god himself and you know that's never recognized by human rights theorists you're not going to you're of course not going to name check you know the one who's given you any anything in this regard or or any uh you know justification for use of power but um but you've got to particularize them and this was traditionally done through um you know it's always done i guess through context and prudence um but it would be it would manifest itself within particular traditions right so english common law as congruent with as all just law should be the the higher natural law is a very particularized historically developed form of you know natural law precepts and this is how richard hooker would justify it and many many others would say the common law's whole rationale is customs that stand the test of time are probably reasonable and just and equitable because they still exist right otherwise people would discard them but every now and then you have a question of equity and that's when a judge comes in so but, but the point is like the expression of english rights and liberties that the founders talk about they are they are um you know the, the trickle down of the natural law for particular people how do we apply this to us based on our history and our interactions and and all these things and uh there are other traditions that could exist legal traditions that are no less congruent with the natural law because it's so basic but are radically different from the english system right that's possible everyone recognizes that so here's what human rights does human rights is a new tradition new legal tradition um that is sort of snuck in and it is a way to particularize um law uh, positive law for people with the facade of even still at the time i mean the 20 mid 20th century you still had a bit of uh you know legitimate natural law thinking it's kind of snuck in and under this facade to give it a higher transcendent basis that everyone intuitively kind of knows you need and but it's particularized for the new community the global community so this is it's an entirely new legal regime that discards actually all the particularity of organically grown legal traditions such as the English system that that Americans of course imported that's somewhat convoluted probably not that clear but that's my best take on like what it does i was i was appreciative you said that cuz that was going to be my question is what about inalienable rights and the natural rights people associate with the founding uh, isn't that part of enlightenment thinking and liberalism and how is that different but i think you just summed it up pretty much like that is the difference um and and i think it's fascinating if you trace english common law if you go back to you know alfred the great and, and the book of doom and and all and, and just go forward to the magna carta and blackstone and all of that you, you see this progression very clearly and and it streams from biblical um precepts but applied in a unique context and it's not suited for every context that's why democracy wasn't suited for uh the middle east uh, or like at least um Iraq and Afghanistan and these places it, they they just don't have the culture that supports that. So it's uh that, that's some, I guess part of the mistake of human rights and universalizing these things. Well, it is uh we've been going about almost an hour and I know Timon um or Ben rather has to go. So let's wrap it up and since we have a lot more to get to, uh that means we'll probably have another episode, maybe two, um hopefully one, but maybe two before we do a Q&A. And so if people listening want to do a Q&A, if you have questions about anything you've heard over this entire series of discussions, we will open it up and and for as long as uh we have addressed those questions. So uh maybe save them somewhere on your phone so you have them in a few weeks when we're able to get to that. Um before Thanksgiving. I can I can assure you it will be before Thanksgiving. All right, well God bless uh and more coming. Bye now. say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. 
Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.